Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and today my guest is Monica Ali. Welcome to Our Shelves, Monica. It's a real pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, Monica is the best-selling writer whose work has been translated into 26 languages. She's the author of five books, including Brick Lane, her debut, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. A fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, in 2003, she was named as one of Granter's Best of Young British Novelists. She has also been nominated for the George Orwell Prize, the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, and in the US has been a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. She lives in London and she is the patron of the Hopscotch Women's Centre. Frankly, Monica, with all these other accolades and sort of strings to your bow, I don't know quite how you find the time to also write such incredible novels. But you do, and you have a new novel coming out in February called Love Marriage, uh, which Virago is publishing. And I have to say, this has been one of the most enjoyable reading experiences of mine of late that I, I got my proof a few weeks ago, and it kept me up far past my bedtime for a few nights while I sat and read it. I just couldn't put it down. It was really brilliant. Well, I'm sorry I kept you up late at night. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's such a beautiful kind of big hearted book and it tells a sort of tangled web of secrets, lies and betrayals um, across these two London families. And these all start to come to light in the run up to a young couple's wedding. Um, and I think one of the joys about this podcast today is that our listeners are going to get a little sneak peek of this because the book isn't out until February, as I said. So listening to you talk about it today will be a little bit like an early Christmas present, let's say, for them. Uh, so yeah, I think rather than me kind of continue to talk about it, could you tell us a little bit more about the story? And um, yeah, it's Genesis, really. Mm-hmm. So it's um, the story of Yasmin, who is a young doctor, junior doctor at a London hospital, and she's engaged to be married to a fellow doctor, Joe who is charming and handsome and everything that you could possibly want. The um, perfect partner, right? <laughs> um, but he cheats on her and Yasmin has revenge sex 
weeks with a colleague. Um, and this she does this against her better judgment. She is um, you know, she thinks of herself as a as a good fiance, a good girl, a good daughter, goes against all her principles and values. And she's tortured by this secret that she's keeping because she's mm-hmm. not telling Joe about it. And Yasmin thinks that this is, you know, this is the big problem in her life. This is the thing that she's wrestling with. Um, little does she know that, in fact, Joe is also not being honest and he is hiding uh, perhaps an even bigger secret, which is that he is a sex addict. Um, and he doesn't understand where this compulsion comes from. He's in therapy. Uh, He's wrestling with this issue. Um, He's tortured by it. But he and his therapist work together to kind of uncover the roots of where it comes from. Um, And then we get into the territory of uh, covert incest. Which I'd never heard of before. This is such a fascinating topic. Yeah, um, I was really fascinated by it as well. So it's sometimes known as emotional incest Mm. as well. So it's when a a parent makes a child into a kind of surrogate partner, you know, unwittingly, Mm. it's not that they're deliberately doing that. But this can cause, it can be very, very damaging. And this is what emerges through Joe's sessions with his therapist. And meanwhile... Um, back at Yasmin Garami's home, things are starting to go awry in all sorts of ways. So her wayward younger brother um, has a big blow up with the family. Um, Yasmin's parents are also, uh, there's a rift that that causes between those two as well Mm -hmm. so yeah I mean basically what I'm looking at is the psychology of relationships how we all hide certain things from each other and how the truth seems so difficult to face um and yet it's by not facing the truths that we can potentially do ourselves and others the most damage I think one of the things I found um, particularly rewarding, and I don't want to obviously give anything um, too specific away to listeners at this stage, but so many of the sort of the ways that I think the story could have resolved itself were not what happened. But there's a real sense of sort of satisfaction and things turning out in the way that that they possibly should do and that should do is not the same as one might want. But there's a sense of this kind of, um, I don't know, a a really kind of... um, very satisfying sense of that once the certain secrets are out, once people are able to talk to each other, once you're able to kind of, you know, actually not be holding back and, and telling your kind of truthful self to other people, that there's a way through. And it might not be the way that you wanted, but it actually leaves you sort of happier and more content in the long run. And, and in a really surprising sense. Oh, good. I'm glad you found that. Um Yes, I mean, it, 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 they're not all happily tucked up in bed, happily ever afterwards at the end. Um, but I, I, you know, I think there's a sort of 
sense of optimism. Mm, it's a really optimistic book. Maybe I was also thinking maybe that's why one of the reasons I enjoyed it, that it felt incredibly kind of real and, and robust. All the characters felt very believable, very kind of relatable to even on all their sort of troubles and when they're making mistakes and with their flaws. But there was something inherently sort of um, empathetic and optimistic about it, which I do think is often kind of, it's something that's sometimes missed in, in contemporary fiction. So I'm really glad you went down that route. You know, I, I can't really write about characters uh, who I don't feel very fond of, you know, mm. I don't have a deep kind of <laughs> relationship and love for all of my characters, really. So with somebody like um, Harriet, for instance, Joe's mother, who mm. is a North London liberal lovey, who was great fun to write. I bet, yeah. <laughs> and... Um, you know, she she's immensely privileged. She's wealthy. She's got a public profile. She's, you know, bossy and interfering. And But in that wonderful way where she thinks she isn't as well. She thinks she's the most sort of liberal, hands-off mother there is. But she's actually the most incredibly interfering. <laughs> Yasmin thinks to herself, she didn't think that English mother-in-laws were supposed to be like... <laughs> I like I do like the tables turned there you think of the sort of you know possibly that it might be the other way around but really no it's Harriet who's the one who's stirring the pot always so Harriet could you know could could have become a kind of monster um, or a figure of fun Um, but actually I hope that I really hope that that's not how people read her because despite all her you know so-called white privilege She's actually just as real and as human to me as all of the other characters. You know, she's got her own particular demons. And, um, you know, I hope by the end of the book that people feel an empathy towards her as well. Well, I think one of the other things I very much enjoyed about it and admired was the way that there was a real balance, I thought, between the characters, that you're able to for me at least you made them all feel incredibly well-rounded even some of the ones you might think of as more playing more minor roles and you got to see into the lives of people who were incredibly different but yet in the same way they were all trying to muddle through this world with their problems and actually it was they were making bridges with each other where we might not have expected as well yeah um I mean, and I think that's how life is. I mean, that's how life in London and beyond in in Britain. I think, um, you know, we live in a multicultural landscape Mm -hmm. and our lives are entangled with each other. I mean, despite lockdown, despite different identities forming their own little interest groups we are all inevitably intertwined and it's Mm. that connection with others and that compassion for others that makes life possible and joyful that's that's what I wanted to convey as well. Well, I think you captured that perfectly. I really do. Um, and also because it has been, you know, I'm sure this is a question you'll get asked a lot, but it has been, this is your first novel in a decade. So I was kind of interested to know, is this something that's been sitting with you for quite a while or have you been waiting for um, inspiration to strike? And how sort of quickly do you write when you get when you get going on an idea? Yeah, um, I started in 2016. So okay. it has been quite a long time in the making. And in fact, 
I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and I ended up with 240,000 words. Wow. Then had to cut and cut and cut. And that was a very different process for me. So, each of my other previous books, I turned out pretty tight first drafts Mm. uh, because I edited as I went along, but I also just felt the shape of the book more concretely whereas Interesting. with this book I'm worried about it because I was writing it in such a different way but now I mean looking back I, I think different books just have different um there's just different sort of gestation different yeah. creation process for each of them and it was absolutely the way that I had to write this book um but yeah, it was a little, it was a little bit unnerving. Mm. <laughs> well, particularly if you say you have like the past ones have maybe come out a little bit more fully formed, or you've had sort of a bit more of an idea about where they're going. To have something that is uh, slightly more unruly as you're writing, that must have been, I suppose, kind of both exciting and freeing, but also a bit frustrating or worrying as well. It it was um, definitely freeing because although I'd have times when I'd think no 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 I've got I've got to tidy it up I've got to do it now I just I couldn't actually stop (laughs) (laughs) I was sort of compelled to keep writing I had so much that I wanted to explore with these characters Uh, and then I would yes you're right I did get nervous about oh my gosh I'm creating this monster and I'm not going to be able to tame it but actually the editing process wasn't nearly as painful as I thought it was was how interesting I actually really enjoyed cutting it down to what felt you know what I hope feels to you as well the the right length and Mm. it's a long book I mean it's you know what is it 500 pages 400 and something pages so it's still it's still a um a, a chunky book but I think it I think it has that kind of kinetic energy now and the the pace that is required absolutely absolutely that's what I found with it I honestly like I say I couldn't put it down I just think readers are going to be in for such a treat when they finally get their hands on it in um, in February uh right let's move on to uh the kind of the main questions here first up Monica if I may I want to ask you to tell me about two books that are currently on your bedside table please Okay, so the first is Crossroads by Jonathan Franzen. And this has been said so many times, but he does write in the vein of a Victorian novelist. I mean, a big, capacious canvas on which he paints in miniature Mm. through his portraits of the Midwestern family. So in Crossroads, we're in the 1970s, uh, the era of the Vietnam War. We're in back in um, a Chicago suburb, and he's focusing on this family, the Hildebrands. Uh, the father, Russ, is uh, a clergyman, um, and his wife, Marion, uh, they're having a difficult time in their marriage, and they've got four children. And All of them, in their very individual, unique ways, are struggling with this question of what it means to live a good life or to be good in this life. I mean, it's a, it's sort of a, um, 
almost middle march in its conception mm. Um, well, it's so, got that link to Middlemarch, hasn't it? In the he's yeah, isn't he? In part of a trilogy that he's yes. caught taking the title yes. from Casobon's yes. works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and I just um, I I completely gave myself over to it. You know, I was completely involved in that world. Um, I, I found it a little bit different from some of his other books, and that it's a little bit more opening out to the world so mm. that there are besides this middle class um midwest white family there's also um some engagement with a navajo tribe of indians um and russ's attempts to help them or meddling <laughs> and do-gooding attempts to help them and with a black church as well in the inner city the, the parent volunteer group are involved with uh, and of course the issue of the Vietnam War mm. um, so uh, uh, I enjoyed the way that he used the family as a lens to to look a little bit wider into society as well Mm. Well, I was going to say, are you a fan of his uh, previous work as well? Because it does seem to split people slightly, Jonathan Franzen. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I think sometimes he's one of those authors people kind of love to hate, but at the same time, his books are read over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really understand why people love to, to hate him. But, you know, I'm a fan of his work. I particularly love the corrections. And I think this is up there with uh, the corrections. And I can't wait for the next instalment. Well, oh, that's high praise indeed, then. Um, and then how does it compare to your second pick, which is something a little bit different, isn't it? Yeah, pretty different. So Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont by Elizabeth Taylor, who is a writer I actually only discovered a few years ago. And I think the first one I read was Mrs. Palfrey. And then I immediately bought the entire um output mm. <laughs> so um I love an author where you find that where you find one and you just know you're going to fall in love with everything else isn't that terrific when that happens I did the same with Penelope Fitzgerald when that biography of her came out so Elizabeth Taylor she in this book she's writing about uh, a, a, an elderly genteel woman who goes to um, live at the Claremont Hotel. It's really another option rather than going to a nursing home. Mm. So all the residents are elderly and Mrs. Claremont uh, and all of them are sort of pretending that they haven't been abandoned, they haven't been rejected, they're there <laughs> because um, this is a good way to live. And in fact, I mean, that makes it sound terribly sad, and it is terribly sad in in some ways. It's touching, it's moving, mm. but it's also hugely funny. Um, so uh, Mrs. Palfrey uh, has a, she has a daughter who she has no contact with, and she has a, a grandson, Desmond, who lives in London, and she's always claiming that Desmond is a very dutiful grandson who's going to come and visit her soon. And of course, Desmond never comes. So Mrs. Palfrey has a fall when she's out one evening, and a young man comes to her rescue 
bandages up her swollen ankle and then gets her back to the Claremont. And Ludo is an impoverished, aspiring novelist and he works in the banking hall at Harrods as then he takes in his his manuscript and his pen and paper and <laughs> spends all day scribbling in the writing hall to save on heating bills. Um, and he, one day he goes for dinner with Mrs. Palfrey at her hotel, and then um, Mrs. P pretends to all the other residents that Ludo is her grandson, and they keep this up. This is sort of this big... Um, well, it starts off as a little white lie and then it turns into an enormous whopper as, as Mrs. Palfrey thinks of it. Um, and, well, I won't, I, won't, I won't say what happens at the end, but I can tell you that it's very moving. It's touching without being sort of mawkish or sentimental. So mm-hmm. Elizabeth Taylor has got a, a very sharp eye for the kind of social niceties that cover up deep emotion and she's got a very precise ear for the the way that the the genteel residents slight each other insult each other without actually ever saying what they mean Mm. so it's a kind of comedy of manners in that way as well and Taylor never patronizes or caricatures these people and you really get to feel a lot for Mrs Palfrey. Mm. I think it's one of my favourites of Elizabeth Taylor's work as well and she's obviously a Virago modern classics author so even better that you're recommending her here but you say that you this is the first book you read but a few years ago so this is you returning to it rereading it again am I right? Yes yes it's um, is that something you do often is it is it one of those books that you kind of come back to or had you just sort of come across it and thought I'd love to revisit? Yeah no I you know I wanted something I mean, it's it's short and it's a fast read. Mm. And I had been buried in some rather long books before that. <laughs> so yeah, I, I I came back to it, and actually, I think I'm going to reread some of her others as well. I'm thinking of a view view of the harbour and a game of hide and seek next up then monica i'm asking you about a recent film podcast tv show or article that's made you think what have you picked for for the answer to this question uh where shall we begin a podcast by psychotherapist relationship therapist esther perel and uh, have you heard it Lucy? I haven't heard it and I'm so fascinated by it because I think Esther Perel is one of those names that I keep coming across people keep mentioning either podcasts books kind of things that she's written and sort of saying that she is unbelievably kind of brilliant at what she does and I must go and find out more and yet I still haven't quite got there so maybe this will be finally (laughs) the thing that encourages me but tell me more about her because I think she's also slightly better known in America or that seems to be my impression at least she's based in america yeah people do become really evangelical about yes that's it isn't it (laughs) why why is that are you are you one of those people now absolutely i really (laughs) am i think she's terrific she's full of so much wisdom and compassion and i feel as though i've learned 
a lot from listening to the the, the format is that uh, it's a one time unscripted therapy session mm. that um, she conducts with couples um, discussing issues in their relationship and they might have come come to her they're not um, clients of hers that uh, that she sees on a regular basis for the purpose of the podcast they are coming in for a, just a one-off session um, so it might be the one that the wife or the husband uh, has had a, an affair or has a, a sex addiction or has um, that they're just not uh, in love with the, with the, the partner and wants to go off and explore something else or it's because the children having had children they no longer have time for sex or it, it could be any number of things okay um, in the relationship. But they're upfront about it from the beginning. Like it's not like maybe like a normal therapy session where it takes a while to get to that. Like we know from the start what the problem is. Yes. So okay. the 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 couple will set out their stall, what the problem is, why they've come to see her. And what's fascinating is the way that Esther Perel gets beyond that surface dialogue. Um, to really dig into what the real issue is. So the so for instance, um it, it might be that one or other of them has had an affair and has put the the relationship in, into crisis. But rather than focus just on that betrayal, that infidelity, which of course is, you know, it's not she's not dismissing that, but what she does is peel back the layers to find where the real trouble in the relationship was that led to the affair or the real trouble not necessarily in the in the dynamic between the two of them or it might be something in the past that has happened even in childhood that has led to that need mm. and that way of um trying to solve the problem that it's completely inappropriate, but nevertheless, it's a it's an attempt to solve a problem. So, um, what what I I think the the reason I mean I like it for all sorts of reasons. What one thing is just the musicality of her voice. I mean, it's just a joy to listen to her express herself. She's like complete opposite of me. She's got this mellifluous sing-song voice and honestly I could listen to it all day <laughs> I've never thought about that but that must be quite a useful thing as a therapist because if you want people yeah. to keep coming and listening to you and actually enjoy not enjoy but you know not find the whole process really extra traumatic probably having a beautiful voice really helps it's, right it is beautiful she's also got a sense of humor which okay. you know very important that I, that I find very important and I think the fundamental reason why I, I find her um, her methods, her approach so engaging is she will say something along these lines. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but this mm. is her basic approach. So a, a couple comes to me with a story, the story of their lives, the, their relationship, um, why they're here today, and what I hope is that the couple leaves with a different narrative 
And it's in that changing of the narrative that people can reframe their experiences, their problems, their future um, by casting it in a different light. So, and if the narrative change, if you change the narrative, you can change your life because of that. You can see things in a different way and therefore you can be and act in a different way. And, you know, as a, as a novelist, that's often what I feel I'm doing with my characters. So Yasmin, for instance, I mean, you could, you could use the words identity or story kind of interchangeably. Um, but she has she has this story about herself, mm. <laughs> about who she is, and uh, and the ways that she has to behave. And by the time the book comes to a, a close, she has a different self narrative. She has a narrative about her mother. Mm. Um, again, she has to revise that narrative. So I think I think although I you know I really interested and intrigued by um, all of this. Um, the couples who come on and the things that they've been through, I I suspect that the reason I'm so hooked on her approach is because I can sort of, <laughs> I can relate to it really. Mm. It's so fascinating because the minute you were talking about the way that she approaches the work, it did make me think of Yasmin and Joe in the book and the way that, mm-hmm. that that that's exactly what's going on. I mean, how, so I'm interested to know, when did you start listening to Esther Perel's podcast and how much of what you kind of learned from her, from listening to that, fed in, do you think, even unconsciously into the way that you wrote your character stories and particularly the way that they're sort of wrangling maybe with therapy and these narratives about themselves? Do you think there was a direct influence? Uh, I mean, it's hard to say. So I started writing it in 2016, and I believe, I mean, I would have to check, but I think that the Where Shall We Begin podcast ran first episodes in 2018, something like that. But I had um, also was in therapy myself, so some of it... It all starts to kind of filter in, right? Yeah, and I've been, you know, because I knew that I had a therapist character as well in the book, I was reading loads Mm. and loads of books about therapy, different approaches, you know, integrated family systems or um, books about addiction. Um, Dorothy Rowe, who I think is a fantastic writer as well as a, a fantastic therapist. So... Uh, and that's just sort of tip of the iceberg. So I'm sure Esther Perel fed in somewhere, but I'd find it hard to disentangle exactly when and how and and yeah. just just the way you're explaining it, it makes me want to listen to them because I love the idea of finding those sort of that narrative, right? The kind of the the, mm. the idea of being presented with a couple with somebody who's kind of in between, you know, being able to make sense of this narrative and help them make sense of it. They must be as addictive. I could see myself getting addicted to them in that aspect of it, right? Even if you're not learning particular things about the relationships because you don't know the people, that's not the point. Oh, it's so it is so addictive, and also. Um, Esther Perel is so good at, at, at um, being able to con- hold the paradoxes uh, that uh, that exist in life and that we somehow fight against. Mm. So, on the topic of infidelity, 
for instance, um, she she might say something like, "Well, uh, al- although the, the the person who's been unfaithful, say it's the the wife, or she might feel dreadful about." betraying her husband in that way and feel awful and guilty for what she's done to him but at the same time it might be that that woman has found another aspect of herself that she feels good about something that she's learned about herself in the process Uh, and that's the, the paradoxical thing in that case that you can feel good and bad about the same same action you can feel terribly torn and I think sometimes you know listening into her therapy sessions you can see how um just just highlighting that just bringing that to the surface that that is okay you know you you we can live with these paradoxes it's it's not all or nothing it's not one thing or the other um life is complicated uh yeah, so it, that's I think that's another reason that she appeals to me because she's so good at finding those contradictions and complications mm. inside of every every one of us. Okay, well you've utterly convinced me. I'm now going to start listening to the podcast okay. and turn myself onto the the cult of Esther Perel. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I'll shall be back in just a moment. Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Monica Ali about the uh, the cult of Esther Perel, who we'll, we'll be listening to after this. Uh, but next up on the shelf, uh, Monica, could you tell me about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way? This is always quite a tricky question. Yeah, so um, the book I've chosen is Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. Hmm. And I've only just read it very recently and it's written from a feminist perspective about the experience of being Asian American um, whilst also acknowledging that that term in itself is problematic because it encompasses so many different uh, groups. So, you know, Filipino, Korean or Chinese, Japanese, but that is part of the issue that... Mm. um, 
people get lumped together in that umbrella term, which is as unhelpful um, as it is helpful. So it's 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 a memoir about growing up um, as the daughters of Korean immigrants, and it it's a book that's full of rage. That's mm. Very courageous in the way that she bears herself yeah. to the reader. Very honest, I thought, brutally honest in her experience of shame mm. um, surrounding things like that. I think there's a line in in the book about um, she's a poet as well as uh, as an academic, and um, well, she she fell into a deep depression, uh, which is which is the opening opening essay uh and she talks about <laughs> the shame involved in doing poetry readings um, in bookshops and other venues to a room full of bored white people as she calls it and nevertheless death being desperate for their approval mm. never mentioning never making explicit that that she is the only Asian woman in the room and somehow that's both something that is unspeakable that she can't say and also some kind of source of shame that she feels for very complicated reasons so I think the intimacy with which she writes about her experiences um yeah just just made me really sit up and take notice and there were lots of lines I mean I don't her experience is different to mine I don't I don't necessarily agree with everything that she has to to say but Mm. I found it riveting I mean Mm. the whole book I was just sort of sitting on the edge of my seat for it um and she does uh, she brings a, a, a feminist lens to lots of issues. There, there is, I don't think it's a feminist treatise and, or a thesis, but for instance, when she's talking about the Korean obsession with eye surgery, she traces that back to the American surgeon, doctor in the, the American army, who pioneered double eyelid surgery uh, for Korean sex workers who were there to service the the GIs. So mm. you know, the, the, there's always a, to whatever she's analysing, she will always bring the feminist um, perspective. And there's a very strong essay on her female friends at college as well. Yeah, that one's very moving and very and incredibly raw again. I think I was struck the same by you. I read it relatively recently. And the her anger and rage throughout is it kind of incredible. Like it she just bears it open in in a way that is I don't know, I think a lot of people would not have the sort of the guts to do that. But it's not it's so well focused within that. Like there's a real there's a real rage there, but it's so beautifully focused into what she's trying to say in each of these essays. And I kept thinking, I wonder if, you know, her her sort of training as a poet, as it were, it just makes her so precise with language and I think so able to capture certain things and and really kind of drill down into the meaning of, of various instances and, and sort of even down to words, you know, on the page. 
well she writes beautifully and you can certainly tell that she's a poet that comes across in her language and the metaphors and the images that she chooses um and it's not it's not always a comfortable read but I think you know books should sometimes make us uncomfortable and throw up new questions and Mm. think more deeply And, and this book certainly does that and there's some there's some great lines in it as well just coming back to the the female friendship um chapter <laughs> I remember her line about those three of them who are really tight close-knit three Asian uh, Asian women and she says we were we were I mean she goes on to say that you know life didn't turn out to be this easy but they really believed in themselves and she says we were as confident as white men (laughs) 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 right (laughs) can I ask how you came across it how did you come to kind of read it because it is relatively recently published are you always looking out for sort of new things to read does someone recommend it to you Uh, somebody mentioned it to me and I looked it up and I thought that sounded really interesting so yes it was word of mouth I mean there's nothing that beats word of mouth I think for book recommendations yeah I think I I, no, I completely agree and I think um I think the same for me now I think about it that it was something I didn't read it on first when it first came out even though it was published very recently but it was one of those books which I heard I kept seeing a lot of people talking about I kept hearing people sort of mention that it was very good and that you know I knew I had to get around to reading it at some point um and I do feel there's so many I don't know this is maybe my own sort of bugbear but there's so many sort of almost kind of tracks about feminism and Mm. you know written today it's really hard sometimes to sort of you know work out which ones are worth reading and which like you say like this one that are really going to make me sort of you know bring me up short stop me in my tracks and make me see something from a different perspective make me kind of understand something new Uh, and this book really did that for me at least well yeah I mean in, in parts it did that for me um in larger parts it just chimed with me and I thought yes she's put her finger on that yes she has nailed that feeling that emotion that until you name it Mm. you explore it you hardly know that you're feeling it because you're really suppressing it so uh, you know I, I I it's another one to be evangelical about that's got to be a hugely kind of poignant reading experience when you find that. I mean, that sort of by implication, you're suggesting that, you know, a lot of this stuff, even if it's things that you felt and and had experienced, but maybe not articulated, you're saying that it's not been very well articulated in other people's writing as well prior to this point? Yeah, I, think, I mean, I, th- I think she... She's very, she's very clear-eyed alongside her rage. I mean... Mm. She's highly analytical as well as passionate. So the combination of those two things, I think, do set, you know, I think they set this book apart from anything else that I've read in in this field. I mean, when you recognise some some things which um, you've experienced yourself, which um, largely remain unspoken, Mm. That, that, yeah it's quite a powerful thing it's a powerful experience actually yeah yeah 
Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, and finally today, Monica, um, on the pedestal, could you tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire? Yes. So I'm going to pick Benifa Bandari, who is the CEO of the Hopscotch Women's Centre. Um, it's in Camden in North London, and uh, it was actually set up in the 90s as a charity by Save the Children mm. um, to help support families of recent immigrant workers who come into the UK, largely Bangladeshi families at that stage. Um, it's no longer part of Save the Children. It's funded by direct grants and fundraising and so on. Um, and um, Benifa has been the CEO for the last few years, and she is the most dynamic, um, positive compassionate, uh, just brilliant leader that the charity could have. Um, You know, through lockdown especially, I was amazed by the, the resilience of the woman. I mean, she's got a great team of senior staff and, uh, and voluntary workers and so on, um, who all must get credit as well. But honestly, Benifer is a, a driving force and she's unstoppable. And all the challenges that, you know, happened in lockdown when you're when you're trying to care for people who might be experiencing domestic violence at home Mm. um whose first language might not be english who already have difficulty leaving the house who might be older and needing care in the home who might be uh vaccine hesitant as Mm. the phrase goes and might need people to come to them and explain and the funding challenges that go alongside of that and the issues of contact and so on. But honestly, nothing gets Benifa down or um, <laughs> any obstacle. She just pushes on through. She can push on through. She's extraordinary. She's also um, the on the boards and chairs of um, other voluntary organisations. She's incredibly busy spinning all these plates, which somehow she never drops. Um, She's a queer brown woman, bisexual woman, Asian woman, and that in itself, a big open about that as she is, that uh, is is also something that's um, out of... The ordinary mm. is absolutely um, the way that she lives her life. You know, <laughs> that, um, she's going to do it her way. Uh, she trained as a ballet dancer in the 1980s. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, that sounds though that was quite a difficult uh, thing to do as a as a brown woman then and it's yeah I think she's kept her passion for dance but wasn't really able to pursue it as a career in the way that she'd wanted to I think times have changed hopefully Mm. and she could 
but yeah, for her compassion and her positivity, she's up there on the pedestal for me. And their latest project is working with Camden Council um, with recent Afghan refugee families mm. uh, based in hotels in London where the refugees, the most needy refugees are being sent. And they're working with the most vulnerable of those members of those particular families. And, you know, they, they, it takes a lot of care and skill and dedication to be able to provide that service. And, you know, Benifa's um, just such a brilliant leader in doing that. Mm. And you're a patron of the Hopscotch Charity. And can I ask how you first got involved with with the charity and Benifa herself? Did you know her before you were officially kind of on board, as it were? No, a few a few years ago. Well, yes and no. So a few years ago, um, we were discussing whether I would become a trustee for the charity. Mm. And I have had trustee positions before. Um, but I went and talked to her and I really liked her and I really liked what they were doing there and I liked the staff and the the women who were who I met who were coming in for help. Um, but I don't love board meetings. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, and, and, you can you can say it, you can say it, nobody does. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not, you know, that I, I think um yeah, I just thought that that probably wasn't the right role for me. I'd much rather um, be a cheerleader and also get to know the projects in mm. more detail and get to know the people involved in more detail. And that's, um, yeah, that's the way that I hope I can contribute sounds wonderful and if our listeners want to find out more can they go to the website Is that be the best place to start yeah go to just put in hopscotch women's center and you can find out all about it from there fantastic well i hope people will do that that's really brilliant um thank you monica that is a perfect place to end thank you so much for coming on the show today telling us all about the wonderful love marriage and all your other brilliant recommendations thank you so much oh i really enjoyed myself thank you Thank you everyone for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's brilliant guest, Monica Ali, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. <laughs> <laughs>